Your love endures forever. All right, Jesus, you're good. Um, Lord, would you just be with me this afternoon? And uh, would um, you be with this congregation um, as you meet us through your word? Lord, thank you for Kevin, Rachel, um, and the team this morning, this afternoon, <laughs> as uh, we engaged in worship through song. Lord, guide me as I preach and uh, keep my lips from error. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. All right. So there are two uh, types of passages of Scripture that are really hard to preach. The first type of passage that's really hard to preach is a passage that nobody knows. Um, because you have to give so much context, you have to give so much history, um, and it, you spend about half the sermon trying to build up to a place where you can preach the sermon, and then you only have about a third of the sermon left to actually bring some application. The other type of sermon that's really hard to preach, or a text that's hard to preach, is a uh, passage of scripture that everybody knows, because... Everybody thinks they already know everything about that passage. Psalm 23, which is the text that we'll be in today, is a text like that. Uh, psalm 23 is probably a psalm where most of us have heard it at least once or twice. Some of us might know it by memory. Uh, you've, if you've been to a funeral, you've probably gotten it given to you in a card. Uh, you know, those little plastic cards that they give at the funeral. They, a lot of times they put Psalm 23 in the back. I remember as a young kid that this was one of the first passages of Scripture that my mom made me memorize. Uh, and so, and then I would just repeat after her before going to sleep. Uh, and then, you know, it just was drilled into my memory. Uh, today I want to talk a little bit about this passage um, and I want to talk a little bit about David as well, the guy who wrote this passage. Actually, Jim spoke a little bit about David um, earlier this afternoon. And David was Israel's second king. Uh, he was the king after King Saul. Uh, and Samuel, the prophet that anointed David as king, only anointed David as king because Saul was a hot mess and uh, did not do things the way that the Lord had asked him to do it. Um, but uh, so David becomes king, um, and David is probably not the best looking. He's probably not the most clever. Um, and how do I know that? Because Samuel has an encounter with Jesse, his father, a man who is reputable, a man who has uh, a, a good reputation among the Jewish people. And Samuel's instinct is to anoint the eldest, most good-looking son. And the Lord says, uh-uh, that's not him. David happens to be the youngest of eight, and he's not the most clever, perhaps, not the most uh, good-looking. And how do I know that as well? Because in that same passage of Scripture where the Lord tells Samuel, uh-uh, he says, the reason is because I don't look at the appearances of, of man, the way men does, I look at the heart. So maybe men would favor David as their king, perhaps because he was well-spoken. You know, I mean, the eldest as their king, perhaps he was more well-spoken or better looking. But David probably lacked some of those qualities. But um, David wasn't that bad either. 
But he, the, his best quality was that he knew the Lord. His best quality was that he was intimate with God. Jewish folklore or the, the stories that Jewish people tell, they say that David was a shepherd, which he was. As the youngest, he did the work that the other seven didn't want to do. And the father sent him out and hung out with lambs and uh, cattle, perhaps even. And he defended the lambs and the cattle uh, so much so that he trained uh, for war, basically, defending these uh, animals. And one day he used the skills that he had developed while shepherding to defeat Goliath. Uh, the Bible tells us he was taunting the people of God and he defeated Goliath with a, a sling and a stone. And the, and, and the people of God tell stories about David. They say while he was out there, he used to bring out his uh, harp and he would sing songs. He would sing over the lambs and... Uh, it was something that was known about him. And when eventually he became king, some people say that David had a hard time sleeping sometimes, as you might when you're a leader of anything. And instead of just, uh, you know, I don't know, doing something else, what David did, according to Jewish folklore, is he brought his heart back out and he started singing and he prayed. And throughout the night, and you, and you can see that in the Psalms, he says, Lord, you awaken me throughout the night. And, and he starts singing um, over the Lord. And the Lord really loves David. He says, David, and you probably have heard this already, is a man after his own heart. And so I don't, the, the text is not clear. Some, some Psalms, which are the Jewish, uh, uh, which is the Jewish songbook. So if they were, you know, go to going to tell them, they'll, they'll choose, you know, the this is the psalm that we're gonna sing. This is the hymn that we're gonna sing today. So this is like we'll we'll sing twenty three or we'll sing fifty four, depending on whether or not it's a song. Some of them are poems, and the Jewish people uh, uh, use this as 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 a songbook. Not every psalm is written by David, but a lot of them are. And the text is not clear whether or not this was written at the beginning of David's life or at the end of David's life or when he was being chased by Saul. Because some Psalms have that instruction right at the beginning. It says, well, this was being written as, uh, you know, David was chased by Saul in the cave of Machpelah. Or this was written in Psalm, in the case of Psalm 51, this was written when uh you know, after he got caught in the act of adultery, uh, after he got caught in adultery with Bathsheba. Um, but Psalm 23 doesn't have that. It just says, a Psalm of David. And I've been actually in this Psalm for the past two months. This has only ever happened to me one other time. Uh, when I was in college, I was in the book of Romans chapter 8, verses 37 through 39 for about the same time. And background to that is I grew up in a very legalistic household and church where everything was very regimented and I had to earn God's love. And, you know, it was drilled inside of me that I had to behave and I wasn't one for behaving. And so I had to behave in order for God to like me. And um, so I experienced some detox through the scriptures and, and, and what that, those verses in the book of Romans says, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, neither height nor depth, uh, 
principalities or angels. Anything on all creation, nothing can separate you from the love of God. The same is true um, for Psalm 23. I was in there for about, for the past two months and I tried to go away and I was like reading devotionally between the Psalms and, and the book of Luke. I was in Psalm 23 and then Psalm 27, Psalm 37 and Psalm 91, the oldies but goodies. And because I used to stay away from the Psalms because I didn't get them. Because a lot of it is written uh, from, a, from a place of pain and life experience that you can only get when harsh things happen. And, uh, and so I used to just kind of like, yeah, those are nice. You know, you, my mom made me uh, memorize those. And I didn't really get a lot of this and they were intimate, and I didn't know anything about intimacy. All I knew was rules. Um, and the last two months or so, I've been able to see the love that God had for David and that David had for the Lord, and just over and over just been reminded of that love here in the 23rd Psalm. What I'm going to do real quick is, um, you guys mind just reading this with me in the spirit of Nehemiah? Would you guys mind standing? And then we'll go from there. Can everybody see that? Everybody, can everybody see that? Uh, this is out of the New King James Version. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me besides the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You guys could sit down. There are seven reminders. Obviously, our, our church is going through a season of transition. Um, and personally, I'm going through some transitions. And there's seven reminders that I draw from these six verses. And I want to share those with you this morning. The first thing is, obviously, David was really acquainted with sheep. He was really acquainted with sheep. So for him to make the transition to the Lord being his shepherd, I think was only a natural one because he himself was a, a, a shepherd as well. And he said, you know what? The way I care for these sheep, which are not necessarily mine, the Lord cares for me. He provides for me. He protects me. He cares for me. He, he heals me when I'm sick. Right, and and it's and it's only natural for him to make that connection that God is his shepherd as well. So I have seven reminders that I want to share with you this afternoon, and 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 maybe they'll apply. I hope they hit, um, and and hopefully they could help us somehow in the in in, in this transition. The first uh, reminder that I have for you um, that I'd see in this uh, psalm is. Be a sheep, not a wolf or a goat. As believers, uh, I believe that the Lord calls us to be a sheep. And why would we be this dumb animal, right? Why, why be this animal that is um, uh, just easily led, right? Because the, 
the Lord loves us. And he wants to tend for us. The scriptures say in multiple places that uh, the sheep know their father's voice. You know, know the shepherd's voice and, and they follow. There are three main animals, right, if you follow with me, that the uh, Bible refers to when talking about people. Uh, one of them is the sheep. The other is the wolf. And the other is the goat. The sheep is not a wild animal. It's a domesticated one. Uh, and some of us are more wild than others. Um, but the reason why I'm saying this to you is don't make it hard for your leaders to lead you. Be a good sheep. Don't be a wolf. Matthew 7, Jesus talks about uh, false prophets being among the people. You know, teaching things that are not biblical, that are not in the scriptures, deceiving people, turning people away, kind of putting people up against what God has set up already. So don't be a wolf. And don't be a goat either. Matthew 25 talks about Jesus will come on judgment day and he will separate the, the, the people like sheep and goats. On the left, he will put the goats. On the right, he will put the sheep. And, um, and you got to remember that Jesus is talking to uh, a culture that this stuff is not foreign to them. You know, they would probably hear sheep all the time and goats all the time. And especially as they're entering uh, Jerusalem and the temple gates. And it was a pastoral culture. When I mean pastoral, I don't mean like Jim and I, but a, a culture of sheep and, and, and herding and stuff like that. So Jesus, in his genius, used... Uh, examples that the people would relate to. And, um, and so in Matthew 25, it says on one side, he's going to put the goats on another side. He's going to put the sheep and on the right side, he's going to put the sheep. The Bible says that um, in Jewish tradition, the right side is a, the side of blessing. It's the side of blessing. So those who are sheep will be called blessed. And those who are goats are going to be those that the, it says at the end of the passage it says cursed to eternal damnation, uh, to hellfire, uh, prepared for uh, the devil and his angels. On the right the, are going to be the people that Jesus says to them, when I was hungry, you fed me. When I was thirsty, you gave me drink. When I was uh, naked, you clothed me. When I was a stranger or an immigrant, you brought me in. When I was in prison, you visited me. And then the people asked, when did we do those things? And then he says, for when you did this to the least of these, those that are on the fringes of society, those that are on the edges of the marginalized, you did this for me. You are sheep. You are welcome into my kingdom. However, those who are on the left, you are not. Why? Not because they didn't earn their way into the kingdom of God, but because they did not bear fruit of having already been in the kingdom of God. They did not feed the hungry. They did not clothe the naked. They did not give water to the thirsty. They did not welcome the immigrant or foreigner. And they did not um, visit those who were in jail. You see, when we are saved, Matthew 7 says that there is an evidence by the fruit of the way that we live our lives of, of our salvation. And that measure of our uh, walk with God is measured in how we love others, whether or not we love well. Um, so Jesus says, be a sheep, not a goat. 
Those who are sheep will inherit the kingdom. Those who are goats will not. I love what um, Charles Spurgeon has to say about this. He says, no man has a right to consider himself the Lord's sheep unless his nature has been renewed. The scriptural description of unconverted men does not picture them as sheep, but as wolves or goats. So those who are renewed, those who are in the fold of God, those who are believers are referred to in scripture as sheep. You know, and that might tick you off like, oh, yeah, I don't want to be sheep. That's something that you need to wrestle through because the people of God, you don't run your own life. You have said, I am a slave to Jesus and I'm a slave to righteousness and I am not my own Lord. I will follow him unto the death. Amen. So be a sheep and not a wolf or a goat and make it a delight on your leaders who lead you. Matthew, I mean, Hebrews 13, 17 says, obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must give account. Obey them so their work will be a joy, not a burden, for that would be of no advantage to you. Uh, I can admit that sometimes I'm hard to lead, right? Would any, anybody else, am I the only one? That sometimes I think I'm the only one that hears from the Lord, uh, you know, in the past or uh, that, you know. And has anybody else been that way where when, when your leader or your pastor says to you, hey, man, maybe check this out or read this book. And you're like, nah, I'll just put that on my shelf. You know, they might have even paid out of that out of their own money, you know, but you're like, ah, no. The Lord could actually really be speaking to you through them. And you're like, nah, I'll pass. As you engage in what God is doing here and what God is doing next, make it a delight for your leaders to lead you. Amen? It's hard. It's, it, it, our nature is to be headstrong and stiff-necked, and we don't want to be led. And as you continue to grow in your own leadership, you'll find that when people are, not hard, when people are hard to lead, when you're hard to lead, that kind of comes back to you. You'll also, God will put that kind of people in your path and be like, oh, that's how I felt, you know? And it's going to be hard for you to lead other people as well. So just say, okay, Lord, what do I have to do? Make me humble. And, you know, your leader might not know more than you, right? But if the Lord has put that leader over you, there's something for you to learn there, right? And, there's, and, and he's calling you to serve and, and be led by, by God and that, by that person. The second thing I see here is trust in his power to provide and to, to restore. Where do I see that? Psalm 23, um, verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pasture. He leads me beside quiet waters and he restores my soul. Trust that God... Uh, has the power to provide for you and to provide for us as a community and to restore us. The soul is uh, the seat of the emotions. Uh, as, as when something like this happens, it, it can become a very emotional time. Um, and I would be naive to think that some people don't have a lot of questions or some people are not angry or some people are not kind of confused, you know, but ultimately, God has the ability to restore us 
and to comfort us and to make all well with our soul again. I'm not saying it's going to happen tomorrow, right? But it is not outside of the power of God for him to do that. One thing that I've um, been learning in the last couple of months is that um, sometimes we do more for God than, we're, than we have the ability to do. What I mean by that is sometimes we do more than um, our emotional reserves, social reserves um, would allow for, if that makes sense. Um, emotionally unhealthy people do more for God than their being with God can sustain. That's a paraphrase from a book that I started to read a couple of months ago. So if, if we want to be emotionally healthy, which is ingrained in the DNA of Truvine, um, to keep our soul well, we're going to have to be able to spend enough time with God to be able to do the things that God wants us to do. And that's part of the restoration process, resting and working and working and resting. And I know that that's something that Jim preaches and that's something that we've always been preaching, saying dig into God so that when it's time for you to do the things of God, then uh, you have the, the energy, the, the emotional quotient to do that. So there's two parts of the Christian life. There's the, the contemplative part and then the, there's the action but a lot of us are always in action and we don't spend enough time in the contemplative part, which is sitting down, receiving from God, going through his word, praying and getting recharged before we're able to go and do the things of the Lord again. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of go through this quickly. Um, number three, trust God to continue to build his church for the sake of his name. Where do I get that from? Verse three, he guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The most important thing about our gathering uh, is not the food that we eat, uh, the friendships that we have. The most important thing about our gathering is that Jesus is lifted up. That people that we know are affected by the way that we interact with Jesus. And that Jesus is made a big deal out of. You guys tracking with me? Truvine has made it this far because we've made a big deal out of Jesus. And Truvine will continue to do great things provided we make a big deal out of Jesus. And there is no doubt in my mind that that's the case. Amen? Do not be afraid. This is one that I have to go back to all the time. He goes, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Say that with me. You are with me. And I think to some degree, most of us at some point have wrestled with fear. Fear whether or not uh, people will like us. Fear whether or not we will get it right. Uh, as preachers, um, as a preacher, I, sometimes I'm, I fear whether or not I will come across misunderstood or people will actually get what I'm talking about. Um, whether or not I heard from the Lord correctly uh, and to deliver the word of God. And so you could fill in the blank you know, with the, the type of fears that you've wrestled with. The, the thing with fear is that everybody struggles with fear to some degree. 
But those that are courageous do not let fear hinder them and stop them because courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is moving on in spite of it. Amen? I love what Spurgeon, Spurgeon has a commentary on the book of Psalms and I was studying that while I was studying uh, this psalm and I love what he says here. He says, observe that it is not walking in the valley but through the valley of the shadow of death. Nobody is afraid of a shadow for a shadow cannot stop a man's pathway even for a moment. The shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot kill. The shadow of death cannot destroy us. Let us not therefore be afraid. So the words that the psalmist David chooses to use, he's saying, even though I walk through the valley, it's something that you're going to get out of. It's something that we're not stuck in. Right now, we may not see the end, but we are not in it. We're walking through it. Can you say walking through it? You are with me. And the most important part of that is that God is with me. His presence is with me and that there is nowhere that we can go that he isn't already. It says your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So a shepherd's rod has like a hook at the end and it's long. It's a lot of times taller than the shepherd himself and it would be used, yes, for some discipline, but most of the times to grab at a, at, at a sheep when the sheep was getting too far away or when the sheep was in danger or it was down a cliff somewhere and it was going to be dangerous and so he would grab it. It has like a hook at the end here and he would grab it by the neck and rescue the sheep. There's comfort in knowing that I cannot outrun the rod of God and that his arm is not too short to, to save and that should I stray, he will pull me back. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read that just so I don't mess that up. There's comfort knowing that I cannot outrun the rod of God, that I am his, and should I stray, he will pull me back in. His arm is not too short to save. Isaiah 59.1 and reference that. Did you rest in that this afternoon? And that's why the psalmist says, I'm not afraid because his rod is there. There's nowhere that I can go that he isn't already. He will rescue me. I'd say, don't get crazy and go testing him, right? That's what I would say, right? There's nowhere that you can go I think it's Psalm 51 as well. If I go to the highest heights, he's already there. If I go to the lowest depths, he's already there. Amen? You guys, are you guys tracking with me still? Okay. Um, there's also this tension, though, that, um, that death is like this real thing, though. Uh, and sometimes things have to come to an, an end. And you, we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, there's a season for everything, a time to plant and a time to harvest, a time to mourn, a time to weep, a time to war, a time for peace, a time to kill, a time to heal, uh, a, time to refrain, a time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. And I love what uh, Pete Scazzaro, again, from the Emotionally Healthy Leader says, death is a necessary prelude to resurrection, to bear long-term fruit in Christ, we need to recognize that sometimes some things need to die or seasons need to end so that a new thing can grow. Embracing the end is the only way to open up a new future. So, I mean, 
it's been, I think as Christians, a lot of times we don't have a paradigm uh, for dealing with loss and disappointment. You know, we're not, we don't have a way to do that when, 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 when we, when things happen, we just like want to throw in the towel instead of trying to work through things, right? Um, and, but sometimes it's very clear that, hey, this season has come to an end, that uh, there is a very clear death to something or that something needs to die. As Christians, we also a lot of times keep things alive longer than they need to be because we don't know how to let go, right? And we, and we trust we don't know how to trust that God has a next step after that as well. So I love what Pete says here, um, that death is a necessary prelude to resurrection. Does that make sense? So it was the case with Jesus. It will be the case for us when we, when we die and the Lord comes back, you know, and, and we will meet him in the clouds. Those of us who are fortunate enough, right? Some of you are like, I don't want to die. I want Jesus to come back. But we experience his death and resurrection as well. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's been hard, you know, for us too, to, to walk through this and figure this out. Um, and we trust that the Lord is on the other side of this. You know, we don't have all the answers. I'm sure some of you have more questions, but we don't necessarily have all the answers. Um, but we believe that God is on the other side and that that our future is brighter than our past, and the same is so for Truvine. Um, number five, David says that he has learned to enjoy his favor and let God worry about his haters. He says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. The same word over and over has been just drilled into my head. My grace will get you where hustling can't. That it is God who moves the chips behind the scenes that will make things happen for me, that I can't hustle my way into the purposes of God. You know, and that was very clear as we were away last week um, and we took the position out west. Uh, the temptation was there to like try to perform or to try to make myself seem better than I really was. Um, but with God, he's like, let me do this. I got this. And um, that's one thing that's a lot of times hard to, to, to learn. And as a New Yorker, that's really hard because New Yorkers are known for hustling, right? So like you always got an angle or something that you're trying to, and God's like, hustling is not for the people of God. I will set a table before you in the presence of your enemies. It's like, and the other thing is like, I think as believers, we think that everybody's going to like us. And the reality is that not everybody's going to like us. Not everybody's not, is going to like our decision making. And sometimes we're going to make decisions that are going to tick people off. And so that's where your enemies are going to come from, right? And people that don't understand, and that just happens. So it's okay not, just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you, everybody's going to like you and that you have to please everybody. If you hear from the Lord, that's the most important thing. You bounce their ideas off your leaders. That's why everybody needs leaders, right? And then you move forward um, in the confidence that the Lord is, is moving you and leading you in the right direction. Number six, trust in his plan and that it is rooted in goodness and mercy. Surely goodness and love will follow me or mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Whatever God has in store for you is rooted in goodness and mercy. We may not see it, 
We may not understand it. We may not get the entire picture. But David understood through all of his years that God is good and that he is loving and that he has a plan and that all the pieces come together. You know, as Melissa and I are going through this, we're like, we don't understand fully. But hopefully a year from now, we'll look back and be like, ah, you know, like that's what that was all about. So um, let me wrap up here and then I'll go to, to this last Number seven, trust in forever, but depend on him daily. Gather and scatter in Jesus' name as an Acts 1-8 family. Uh, and I will dwell, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So there's this tension here that a forever, forever, like for, until we go with Jesus, until Jesus comes back and we dwell with him forever. But also this idea that we need to dwell in the house of the Lord now and forever doesn't start tomorrow, forever starts today. And as we wait for forever, in the meantime, the New Testament calls us to gather as a family um, and, and the alliance terminology that our president has been using recently, which is our denomination, is an Acts 1-8 family to accomplish the great commission that Christ left behind. And this is it right here. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And Jesus says, hey, this is the type of people I want you to be. I want you to be a people of the Holy Spirit. I want you to be a people that reach right where you're at, a little bit further away. The people that you're uncomfortable with, the Samaria, the people that you don't really know or understand, different culturally than you, the people that you have beef with um, traditionally and to the ends of the earth. So these are the seven reminders that I want to leave with you. Um, from the book of uh, Psalms, chapter 23. Be a sheep, not a wolf or a goat. Trust in God's power to provide and restore. Trust God to continue to build his church for the sake of his name. In another place, the Bible says that he will uh, uh, build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do not be afraid. Have courage. Enjoy his favor and let God worry about the haters. Trust in his plan and that it is rooted in goodness and mercy. And trust in forever. Yes, one day we will be with Jesus forever and ever and ever and a day. But depend on him daily. Gather and scatter in Jesus' name as in Acts 1-8 family. I'm going to ask you guys to stand and then I'm going to ask Jim to come up. Could we recite Psalm 23 together? And then we'll go from there. Let's not rush through this. And um, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runs over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me 
all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Thank you for letting me preach here today.